Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Rebecca Lawrence and this is Voices. In this set of interviews, I will be focusing on issues of inclusion, diversity and allyship through intimate conversations with wine industry professionals from all over the globe. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps us cover equipment, production and publication costs. And remember to subscribe and rate our show wherever you tune in. Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast with me, Rebecca Lawrence. Today on Voices, I am so stoked to introduce our listeners to someone who I have long admired, uh, Tahira Habibi of Hugh Society, Roots Fund, and so much more. Welcome to the podcast, Tahira. Hi, thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So I don't really know where to start because you've been really instrumental in the growth and change of the industry, not just for the past couple of years, obviously, whilst you've been in the spotlight, but kind of behind the scenes as well for a long time. So maybe the best place to start is to ask you maybe to introduce yourself to the listeners. Sure. As you said, my name is Tahira Habibi. I am a SOM and the founder of Hugh Society. I'm also one of the co-founders of the Roots Fund um, nonprofit. I've been working in the industry for over 10 years. I started my career at the St. Regis and I worked at a couple different places in Miami, uh, down there, a lot of leadership roles. And then I just got tired of seeing no one who looked like me and it was very lonely. So um, I left the floor and I left like the industry and I really started doing um, community work, community centered work you know, focusing on advocacy and creating access and resources for uh, communities of color, really, you know, it started with the Black community, and I was very focused on that. And then as Q Society grew, the need grew for other people who were also being marginalized, and I'm never going to turn someone away from community. So, you know, the reason why I called it hue is because we're all different colors. And so, you know, that includes all people of color. It's just, you know, I had to, I had to take care of home first. And now we're kind of like branching out into the full, full range. Wow. Uh, so yeah, you, you talked about your formative years in Miami. What, can you dive a little deeper into what your experience was there? Like you say, you, you said it, eventually it wasn't quite the right fit for you. Is that what pushed you to, to, do something like you? Yes and no. I think on some level, I've always been an activist. I've, I've always been an advocate for sure. I, you know, I, I have a, a minor in African-American studies uh, from Penn State. So it's, it's not like it was just like, oh, you know, let's let's start promoting this. But Miami. So Miami is like its own planet. I don't know if you've ever been or worked there, but Miami is definitely its own planet. And that is where I spent the majority of my career as a SOM, like working as a SOM. That's where I spent my work career. That is where my development happened. And I had, I had incredible experience. It, it was, um, a lot of people don't start their career as, as their first job at such a high level. So there was a lot of pressure there. And then the pressure of being black and the pressure of being a woman in this space was intense, but I learned a lot. Like, you know, me and, and a friend of mine, Julia, have this joke like, you know, I used to drink Opus One and, and uh, Petrus on Tuesdays for lunch because that was that was my life. Like, you know, I was around rich, wealthy people who money didn't mean anything to, and I was serving them these super high-end wines. And I learned so much about, like, that's where I learned, like, fine wine, like vintages, like all of that stuff. 
And I come from, I don't come from money. I come from love. That's it. Not money. (laughs) So, you know, I grew up poor. So, so this was like the contrast was just astounding to me, just like watching people just spend money on wine like that. And then the other thing was people were not used to seeing a black woman as a Psalm. And so I would get that all the time. And we had a lot of Europeans who would come into the restaurant because I worked at my, I ended my career at the St. Regis at Jean Georges. And, you know, they, I've been sent away from tables. People were like, we don't want you at the table or um, what do you know about wine? Or, you know, we want, we want the white guy or, because my, my counterpart was, uh, he's actually Cuban. No, he's Colombian, but he presents as white. And, you know, they want him and, you know, just all kinds of like atrocious things. So it was like, you're having this experience of your life. Like you have the job of your life. Like what else, how else do you enter your career than, than at that level? But there was a lot of pressure and it was a lot of racism that I had to deal with overt and, you know, overt. Like it was just a lot of biases, a lot of, and at the time like I said, people weren't used to not only not seeing a black song, but they weren't used to seeing a black woman. And it was just like, what? Like today, <laughs> it's a lot different, right? Like, and I feel like the few of us who were working on the floor at that time, like we normalized having people see that. Like we had to go through the, that grunt work really in order for people to get used to that. So, you know, the, so that Psalms today can you know, still experience some form of racism, just not as as much, I guess, you know? And the other thing was, I, I got tired of the question, like, are there, so it was kind of like the onus was on me, like, oh, since you're a Black Psalm, or are there any Black winemakers or, you know? And it would always be kind of like, like when I got the question from Black people, it was sincere. It was like, no, seriously, like, do you know any Black winemakers? But when I got it from other people, it was like passive aggressive, like, are there any black winemakers? Like, tell me, tell me everything. Did they quizzing me at tables and stuff? Like, you know, what is, what are all the grapes of Chateauneuf to pop? Like, what? <laughs> like, do you want this wine or not? Cause I, you know, it just got to a point where I, and I was never able to be myself. So there was a lot of trauma wrapped in, in this thing, like, you know, dealing with the racism, dealing with the idea that I couldn't be myself at all. I wasn't allowed to wear my hair a certain ways. I had to dress a certain way. I wasn't allowed to wear my big earrings. Like my heart was broken, mostly about the earrings. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But still, you know, it, I I think that this, it, that's violence. I think that code switching and this idea of, the, you know, is violent. It is very violent. Like you write these things into policy and it's, it's a very anti-Black. A lot of policies that HR representatives of corporations and organizations right into policy are, are anti-Black. They don't want you to present as yourself. They want you to come and be a robot for them. They want your talents. They want your skills. They do not want you. And I was just sick of it. And I was done. And then I, you know, I, I left the St. Regis. Like my last straw at the St. Regis was, you know, one of the managers that was like higher up in the hotel calling my braids things and telling me that I couldn't come back to work. And I'm not supposed to have those things in my hair. And I was just like, I, I'm, I'm like done with this. Like, I, I literally can't. And luckily, one day, the owner of Michael's Genuine, which is another like um, exceptionally historic restaurant in Miami, happened to come in and he was really impressed with me. And so 
they reached out and I ended up working there. And that was pivotal because it was super geeky. And so I had got this like amazing fine dining, fine wine experience. And now I'm getting like this super geeky, you know, down to like like soil types and like really digging into producers and like all of that stuff that I hadn't had before. Like it was cool, but you know, those people weren't interested. Like this was like, and so I got a really well-rounded wine experience and and education and and I had a really great career, not for nothing. I can't say that I had, like I had a great career. I was very privileged, but that privilege did come with a price. It It wasn't like, wasn't like most people who were privileged, you know, it's not like white privilege where you're just like, here you, here you go. And, you know, you know, there's no trauma that's coming with that. Like a lot, uh, most of the privilege that we get comes with some trauma. But for me, I just found it really important to, I, I understood that I had privilege and I understood that I had power and I just felt like it was time to redistribute that power. And so I went on to be a wine director and I opened up a couple places and, and all of this stuff. And but, you know, my heart was still in community. And so I ended up quitting. I was just like, I'm not, I think I might've got fired from my last job. Cause I think I was just like, so fed up at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I might've got fired. Cause I definitely was just like talking back. Like I was just talking back. I'm done with this. <laughs> I was done. And I was just being myself. And I was just tired of people telling me that I couldn't be myself, but you wanted my skill set. And I was good at my job. So it was like, you're going to hire me because I'm good at my job, but you're not going to leave these parts of me out. Like you're not going to, uh, you know, just dismantle my being and my humanity for your benefit. And so I was like, well, you know, I'm actually pretty good at my job. I'm going to take these skills back to my community. So I quit and I started doing community events and I was just very focused on black winemakers. I was focused on black wine consumers um, it was really important for me for us to be able to learn and experience wine through our own experience, experiences and things that we like culturally, you know, through music, through art, through cuisine, which in the wine world doesn't exist. Like you don't pair wine with soul food. You don't, you know, there's no mac and cheese that you're, you're putting with the wine. Like there, no, you don't try to, no one's trying to hear all of that stuff. So I was just, I was like, well, I'm going to normalize. I'm going to make you here. I'm going to make you see it. Like you're going to pay attention to this. So I started doing events. I did a wine and reggae festival. It was huge. Like 3000 people showed up. And then, you know, I started doing smaller events, but I always did events through the lens of just blackness. It was like the, as black as I can make it, that's, that's exactly what I was going to do. And you were either going to like it or you weren't going to like it, but I knew who was going to like it. And that was the only people I was focused on. And um, then I got pregnant and I was like, definitely not raising my child in crazy ass Miami. So I moved to Atlanta and I really wanted to expand upon my first company was called Sipping Socials. And so I really wanted to expand upon because at this time, like we started seeing other black wine professionals like come out, like, you know, on social media and stuff like that. So I'm like, OK, we need a place where we can all, where we all know where we are. Like we can gather, we can see each other, we can, you know, build and, you know, just like an umbrella. And so I knew what I wanted. I knew what the concept was. I knew I wanted to open chapters. I knew I wanted to build communities. I just, I just didn't know like what I wanted to call it. And so, you know, when I started thinking about Hugh, you know, it was my Jay-Z lyric, 
Yeah, <laughs> I wanted to reference that because I just think that's brilliant. He's like, you know, was was better than one billionaire because that's for me. That's what it was. It's about building wealth. So I was like, he's like was better than one billionaire too, especially if they're the same hue as you. And I was like, that that is exactly right. That's a hundred percent correct. And so you know, he's society, and I wanted it to be a society because, like I said, it's meant to be chapters. It's meant to be like this big thing. And so, um, and plus, you know, it's a double entendre, like there are different hues of wine. So, you know, it was just perfect. And when I got to Atlanta, you know, I tried to move to the blackest city I could find. So I was like, all right, you know, I'm going to build this organization. I'm going to move here. And, you know, I did. I moved to Atlanta, I think, I think three years now, it was 2017. That's the same year that Hue Society was born. But everybody thinks like Hue Society is like this new thing. It's like, no, I was doing this. Before Hue Society, I just rebranded and expanded what the work that I was already doing for a few years. So it's not, I mean, technically, yes, as a, from a business license perspective, it is new, but it's not really like new. I wanted to ask about the decision to have, like you say, the chapters and the local teams with mentors. Why particularly did you want to go for that kind of model? Because we, I know that we needed to be in community with each other. And I, I'm very particular about what that community looks like and who has access to it. We don't have anything like that. We never had anything like that where we could just come and be ourselves 100%. And I also knew that every city is different. Like, and, and Black people take a lot of pride in their cities, like very seriously. And I knew every city was different. And I knew that every city needed something different. And with the way the wine laws work here, every state is different. So I knew I needed to have people in the States that could provide resources and create access for inner city. Like it's, it's not just the people who work in wine. This is about like people from the community. So in the chapters, we have doctors and lawyers who love wine and they want working knowledge and, and stuff like that. But I needed to make sure that it was accessible and access looks different to everybody depending on which community you're you're in or which state or which city. So it was never about me. I wanted them to have the autonomy to build their own thing. Like I had built up this this organization and I was like, okay, well it's time to kind of start re- redistributing that power and that and those those resources. So but I don't I don't have to do it. They can do it themselves. Like you decide what works for you, what looks good to you, what feels good to you in that particular segment of the community. And so New York is very different from Atlanta, which is very different from California. Like those communities all need different things. And so I thought that it was really important to make sure like I was speaking to the people and giving the power to the people, which is the issue with the wine industry. Like no one wants to give the power to the people. Everybody wants to like hoard power. And resources because they everybody wants to be the only one in the room. Everybody wants to be the top dog. Everybody wants to, and it's just like, I don't need to be any of those things. I, I already am those things. I'm fine. I don't need to, and no one can no one can take that away from me, right? Like I I built that up on my own. So I'm I'm I know like the risk that I take when I do stuff, but no one can do anything to me. So I don't work for anybody else. Like I didn't. I don't like no one. I don't have ties to like people and organizations where like you can't say that or you can't do this. Like none of that. And I want, and that's a sense of freedom that I want everybody to feel. At least when you come to this space, you should be able to feel like that. You should be able to say and dress and and 
be yourself a hundred percent, whatever that means to you. So it was just really important to me that autonomy was there for, for the people who were joining in this journey with me. I think that's like, it's one of the things that has really impressed me about Hue Society because you basically took all of the stuff that you had had to deal with in your career, this idea of like not being able to have your identity and put that into action right down to, like you say, the the recognition of the fact that what the needs of New York are are not going to be the needs of Atlanta. And like the needs of an inner city community are going to be different to the needs of a suburban community. And like to see that demonstrated in the wine industry through you know through a society it's just not something anyone else has done it's not something anyone else has recognized like you look at wine education or or wine groups wine clubs and it's all done in the same way wherever it's franchised and I really love that you've just gone why (laughs) we don't have to do that like (laughs) that's not how the world works why is it how stuff in wine should work so it's been super super inspiring so obviously talking about like being a community and a lot of that is being in person and in-person interactions, how have you adapted in the, because the last year and a half must have been pretty tough for, for that side of things, particularly as, you know, having built a lot of this based on the events, very much in person with a, you know, community focus. So how, how have you, yeah. Well, I tabled the events um last year I didn't do any events I had I had a ton of events planned let me tell you like I literally my schedule was packed from March through I think like the end of September like every week like packed and then boom was it it was it and I was like okay well here we are so I actually launched the chapters during that time like I took time to launch the chapters and I did it virtually and I thought that that was important because we needed, we definitely needed to be together. And also I knew that we would be able to do this virtually with within little segments of each other, right? So I took my time and launched the different chapters and they do virtual tasting. So, you know, they create kits and, they, and you know, you go pick up your kit, you get on the, the screen and whatever. We also do national tasting. So, you know, we, we do national programming. So some things, all the chapters come together for, you know, we, we do seminars, we do national tastings, we do speaking engagements, like that kind of stuff as well. So we are still programming virtually. It's just not um, all together. But in August, all of that changes because Big Q Society Weekend's coming up. And, you know, we're, I'm bringing back the Roses and Rosé Awards Brunch, which is the only awards brunch that focuses on people of color, right? We're doing the Black Wine Experience where, you know, it's all Black wine tastings, um, importers and distributors. We're doing any an event called RICE, from, and, and it's about pairing food from a cultural perspective because rice is the one is is one of the foods that almost every culture cooks, but they all cook it differently. And so we're doing, yeah, we're doing an event of that and, and pairing different wines with rice um, from different cultures, and you know, having a discussion on it. And we're doing fun stuff. We're doing sabering competitions and Perone challenges and blind tasting. So it's only a weekend in Atlanta and, you know, super excited about that. Like we're back. It's it's time. Like I'm doing a a cookout, like a midnight cookout. Like it's time. It's go time for sure. And the other thing is the chapters, while they are black centered, 
their Hue Society was never about excluding anybody. It was about creating an inclusive space for ourselves to see ourselves as ourselves. So, you know, New York is opening back up. They just opened up their chapter application. They got a ton of applications. And yeah, there will be non-Black people, non-people um, of color. There will be white people in the chapters. But the thing is, what would you do is you invert the, the power structure and you put it on its head and you guys had the chance to do this and you saw what you did with it. So, you know, you know that you're coming into our space and what that looks like and what that feels like. And it's always welcoming. We don't, we don't, you know, it's never like this, these barriers, we don't create barriers for other people. And so I think that that's really pivotal because it, you know, that you're coming into a black centered space and they feel, and we feel comfortable, right? Like we don't have to change ourselves. If you want to change because you come in a space, we don't recommend it, but you know, that's no one's pushing you to do that. So it's different, you know, and, and, and yeah, there, there, there'll be that. It's going to be what the wine industry should look like like everybody, <laughs> but unabusive and untraumatizing and, you know, violent. Yeah, just, yeah, open and supportive and loving and creative is, is what we need the industry to be. And that's how I think we're going to re-energize the industry as well, because I feel like there's been historically, like, there's a huge swathe of people that have just been excluded from the industry who could be welcomed into it and enjoy the wines and enjoy the culture. It's like, just, I mean, from a business perspective, like there's this whole group of people that no one's been marketing to and talking to like, and that's, that's just so wrong. It should be this open space. Yeah. It's crazy. And it's stupid. It doesn't, it doesn't make financial sense either. Yeah. So I want to touch a little bit also on the Roots Fund, because obviously you're involved in that as well. And you have been partnering Hue Society with Roots Fund recently, I understand. So dive into Roots Fund a little bit and and the work you've been doing with them. So Roots Fund was born out of the need. So Hue Society is the community. Roots Fund is taking that community to the next level. So, you know, if you're part of the community, you, you have interest in wine, blah, blah, but a lot of times the barriers are that you don't have the money to pay for these tests. You don't have the money to travel to these tests like or study or buy wine that is going to help develop your palate and all of that stuff. So Roots is creating pathways. It's all about creating pathways and financing pathways for, for communities of color to get into the wine space and whatever that means to you. And I think that we're different because we don't specify what that looks like. Like, we're not like, oh, you can only do this test or we're giving you scholarships to this program or whatever, whatever, whatever. If you're going to community college, we will pay for, you know, if you want to take a business course and why we will pay for that. If you need money to travel to your test, we will pay for that. If you need help with relocation, we will pay for that. Like we give scholarships for everything as long as it's wine related and, you know, you need the money to help facilitate your career, we're going to help you because that is how you create diversity. That is real diversity. It's not this, oh, you know, I'm checking the box. I got this many black and brown people. I'm going to bring them into this broken ass system. And, you know, that's diverse. That's not diversity. Like we're a, we're creating um, and eliminating barriers for people. So that's the main work. And we're doing the work. We're sending people to France. Like we will have so many enrichment trips for people who never even thought about leaving their neighborhoods. You know, we've moved people across the country to be able to work wine jobs when they would have never been able to 
we've got, we do um, job placements and internship placements, everything. I mean, what you need, we do it. And that's why Roots Fund is so important and funding stuff like that is so important because how else do you get people to where they need to go? Like people need a jump start, or, you know, people need experience. People need to be able to, and, and you complain about like, oh, you know, you have to have this much experience, but you're not giving somebody opportunity to get the experience. So we, we, we did all of that. We make sure like that you're good, like from beginning to end, whatever that means, um, whatever you need, we, we definitely will provide that. I really love that Roots Fund are doing it. Like you say, there's no specification of like, okay, well, we'll only give you the money to do your WSET level three. Because people forget, I think, particularly if you're at a certain level involved in the industry, which can be very insular, that like it's not just the course that costs the money. It's traveling to the course. It's buying the wine for the course. It's maybe getting the textbook. It's all of that stuff. And then maybe that's not your path. Maybe like you say, you actually want to go into business, but you're really into wine or you want to go into marketing or you want to work in a winery, but no one talks about how difficult access is for all of that. It's not just access to quote unquote education. It's at every single level. Like maybe you just need help buying the suit that's going to get you the job interview. All of that stuff is privilege and access at every, you know, there's every single door is shut in people's faces, which drives me nuts. (laughs) That's yeah. I could rant. I, I have been ranting about this with a lot of people. Like, and like we're talking about access to uh, thinking about food and the way the kind of the way that wine has been very exclusive in food. I was talking to Jade Male recently, who is uh, another woman I love uh, about you know, and we were having this great conversation about the fact that you know Italian wine pairs so well with lots of different types of food, and we just need to expand you know the classic views about what food and wine pairing is because food and wine pairing is literally just taking a bottle of wine and drinking it with food like that's that's it like <laughs> right and people ask me that like what's what's a good wine pair I'm like what do you like to drink like the first rule is does it taste good to you <laughs> if it tastes good to drink it like just just open it like no judgment like if you like it the pairing's done <laughs> Um, so I want to talk before we talk about your amazing um, cover on Wine Enthusiast, because I do want to dive into that. But uh, I want to continue with some uh, some talk about uh, how you've made changes in the industry, because obviously you did have a slightly infamous and viral posting about the Corona Sommeliers. Uh, and whilst I don't want to dive like specifically into that, because um, I know you've talked a lot about it on a, on a lot of places, what I did want to talk about is language in the wine industry, because you brought up this really amazing point about the importance of language and inclusive language, and maybe people recognizing that they have these biases that they don't realize exist, and that expresses itself in language and how damaging and how violent this can be. And I'm kind of hyper aware of this. I'm an educator and a communicator. And I'm really aware that maybe I have biases as well that that I am expressing and don't even realize it because maybe I don't have someone in the room who's brave enough to get, say, call me out on it. So I wanted to ask how you think the industry should be reapproaching language. I think Language is a barrier on, on multiple levels because, you know, we talk about professionalism, which is really just 
which is really just an, another form of uh, privilege and supremacy masking itself. Because, you know, take African-American uh, vernacular, you know, for example, it's enjoyable when you feel like it, but we have to change it when you feel like it, right? And, but a lot of these terms, a lot of these words, they, you know, we, we shape that kind of culture. And, but until it becomes acceptable to white people, it's, it's unacceptable. It's, it's ghetto. It's, you know, and I say this all the time, like it's always ghetto until it's, it's appropriated. So when you appropriate the language, then it becomes acceptable. And I'm just like, no, why, why do, and, and it's not even just like, obviously not black people. It's, you know, when you talk about Latin people and accents and all of that kind of stuff, like people literally study to change their accent and to rid their accent. Anybody who's not European, by the way. That's really interesting because I have deliberately changed my accent because this is not the accent I grew up in. Because I grew up in a very rough northeastern town with an accent that was basically unacceptable for jobs and academic access in London. So I did exactly that. It even happens in 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 the UK. Like and that's crazy. Yeah, it does. But that's but that's the thing. White people can experience white supremacy too. Like it's a white supremacy is a system. It's not about white people. It's about systems. And so when you talk about systems, one of the things that's embedded in that is language, which is, you know, but it's very intentional towards marginalized communities though. Like that's that's how they keep you out. You're not professional enough. Those, those are barriers. But they also don't give you resources to adjust to what they consider professional. And so it's like this, this backhanded slap in the face twice. Like, I can't be myself. You're not going to give me the resources to be who you want me to be. So what, do you, what exactly is it you want me to do here? I just think it's so violent. Like, and also, you know, excluding words or, you know, uh, or words that you don't understand, like when, it, name pronunciations, like you, Phoebe don't look shit like Phoebe is spelled. You can pronounce that though, but anybody else's name who's not white sounding, Sarah, Megan, like these kind of things, you make it seem like it's so difficult to try and figure out how to pronounce their name. No, correct them every time. Correct them every time. Like, we have to stop buying into these systems. Like, you're not allowed to talk a certain way on the floor or, you know, like, all of those biases. Like, that's a Black word. You're talking white. Like, it's crazy to me. But we have to stop buying into these systems. Like, I'm not adjusting. I'm not adjusting the way I talk. I've done it in years. I'm not adjusting the way. If I feel like cussing, I'm going to cuss. And also, like you say... This idea, this this idea of quote unquote using professionalism as as basically a tool for, like you say, racism and exclusion, is just so unacceptable. Like, and also it's so cultural because what is you know professional in one community is not going to be the same in another. So we, we yeah we can't just like put a blanket over it and say it's all one thing. Yeah. But that's what white supremacy is. That's how it manifests itself. They want you to be one thing. You have to look one way. You have to, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's so messed up. So sad. 
So let's talk about something amazing because I really want to talk about your cover for Wine Enthusiast 40 Under 40 because you were given pride of place and had, as I understand it, a Zoom photo shoot, which must be crazy at the best of times and obviously robbed of an award ceremony. (laughs) But your decision for the setting I assume that that was yours because it it's such a powerful cover um I'm hoping that we can find it to share in the social so how how did you choose that particular design so I when they had so they had emailed us about being chosen to be on the list prior to like the George Floyd thing the the civil rights movements that was that was going to happen and, um, when they emailed me, I was like, okay, so I'm either going to, if I'm going to do this, I'm either going to get the cover or I'm not, I'm not going to do it. And that was just like, that was like my thought process going into it. So I really just wanted to represent all the things that I stand for and, and what was important to me. Um, and I shot this, I'm pretty sure I shot this before. I can't remember if I shot it before George Floyd or not. I think so. But it was just really important because I, I wanted everything. Like the wine in the glass was black. My makeup was from black people. The dress was a black designer. The tablet says Juneteenth. Like I wanted to represent blackness. And it is kind of like reminiscent of like the Statue of Liberty. Like that's, it was just fully liberation. And that is how I feel the most liberated. Like in my skin with my people. Um, and, and I'm just trying to free some people. And that, that's exactly what I went for. And I was just like, this is definitely going to be a little political for them. So they're either going to put me on the cover or they're going to kick me out. And I had to come to terms with and be okay with either one of them. And I was, I was like, I'm all right with either one. Like, if you decide this is too much for you, that's fine. I won't do it. Like I, I literally just won't be involved in the thing. I'm not changing it though. So I didn't really give them an option. I didn't say these things to them. I kind of just showed up. I, you know, I chose a place that I was like, okay, what looks like I would be standing like the Statue of Liberty. I was very intentional about like everything, like super intentional. I knew exactly how I wanted it to look. I knew what I wanted it to feel like. I knew, and I had to shoot it twice, weeks apart. Yeah. So the first time I shot it, it was in the sweltering sun, like sweltering like it looks like I'm glistening from um, I'm glowing on that cover that sweat <laughs> and the uh, and then I had to shoot it in the rain it was raining because they they said they didn't feel like they felt like the sun shots were too bright so they asked me to shoot it again and the day they <laughs> we chose to shoot it and the second time I had to have my daughter there in the street that we shot it on it's like a super busy street and so you know, at all, at all times, I got like one eye looking at my daughter to make sure she doesn't run the street because she was three at the time, you know, making sure she doesn't go in the street. And, you know, and then I am in the, in the rain trying to pretend like it's not raining, which is the first time, you know, it was hot and I was baking, but my daughter wasn't there. So I could concentrate a little bit more. But the second time, yeah, it was, I mean, it was, it was, it was a lot. It wasn't, um, and you know, you have this, like this, this phone and they're trying to, you know, take pictures of you through the phone, through zoom and you hear, like, you can kind of hear the camera clicking, but you don't know if they're actually taking pictures. And I'm just like, it was, it was a lot. It took a lot to get that cover. Um, and I, but I, I, I knew like, I was like, I'm not going to, at the time I didn't know 
that I would have been the first black woman, which is like, yay, but really? Also, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I didn't know. So when I went when I went to shoot it, I didn't know I was I would be the first black woman. And then I realized that like after I just kept telling my friends because we weren't supposed to tell anybody. So the the two or three people that I did tell, I just told them like, yo, I'm going to get this cover. Like I'm going for the cover. Like if I'm going to do this, I'm going for the cover. And they're just like, you're crazy. I'm like, no, I I mean, aim, aim high. Why not? Yeah. And also like it made the cover and it makes, for me, it made all the statements that you wanted to make. Like, I think it's because it's so striking. And like you say, it's got all of the power, but also the politics involved. So yeah, I, I was very, very pleased to see that you made the cover. So we're running out of time. The producers are going to kill me for running over. <laughs> I do this all the time. It's like, it's just such a good conversation. So I need to ask you about actual wine, obviously. And it is the Italian wine podcast. So <laughs> I should probably ask you about some Italian wine. And I know you do have a particular affinity for Pinot Noir, but I wondered actually if there is maybe a particular... Italian wine that's your your go-to if you have a favorite if there's something you reach for I love Nero I love Nero love 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 I think it's just so underrated and I and the thing is it's it's so affordable but also I haven't had a producer that was bad like I haven't had a bad Nero I've had a bad Pinot before but I've never had a bad Nero and I I also I love a, a good Barbera I think that you know Barberas are are like to me they're like the italian pinots like obviously pinots are italian pinot noirs are italian pinot noirs but they they kind of serve like that same purpose in the sense of uh you know they're they're food wines but they're also easily to drink and italian wine like obviously in the the last couple years they've calmed down a little bit and they're more approachable early on but italian wines you know when i was coming up was like yeah, wait a few years to drink that. So I, I had this affinity for Barbera because I could just drink it. Like it didn't have to wait or was it like 50 years old or 20 years old? Like, you know, like I have, I have some Barbera, um, some Barbarescos and Bar- Barolos in there that are older and I still don't know if I should drink them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting actually because a couple of guests that I've asked this question to have also said Barbera and I think it's a really underappreciated variety because like you say you can enjoy it with food no problem but you can approach it it can be approached young or you can have varieties um winemakers are doing it so you can age it like it's just such a great all-round choice and yeah narrow my god so good that kick of spice in it just nails Ah, it for me it's the best man it's like yeah you definitely live up to your little name little spicy black grape yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) i feel like that's the perfect one for you yeah spicy little black grape it's great (laughs) Uh, Tara, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation on the Italian Wine Podcast today. Um, where can our listeners find you, Hughes Society Roots Fund, online and on social media? Yeah, so Hughes Society on social media is at the Hughes Society on all social media. The Roots Fund is is the Roots Fund is the Roots Fund. Yeah, I think on all social media as well. And the Roots Fund, like if you want to donate and continue this work, is. Um, www.therootsfund.org. We're always looking for mentors and and donations and you know help. <laughs> and in the roots and the in he society is um, 
www.thehughsociety.com. Okay, I really encourage our listeners to go to Hughes Society and the Roots Funds website, see the amazing work that Tahira and her colleagues are doing. I mean, seriously, it's going to blow you away. Um, Thanks everyone for listening. Don't forget to follow us on social media, subscribe, and of course, you can donate on our website to make sure we can continue to bring these great conversations to you. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Himalaya FM, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. Until next time, cin cin. Cin cin.